Okay, good morning everyone. Morning, welcome to Connect Church in Meadowridge. It is really wonderful to be with you this morning. It's always a privilege for me to be here, and I'm really looking forward to sharing with you, as uh, Shell's mentioned, in our Nehemiah series as we work through rebuilding the, and the book of Nehemiah. I want to start by, by just putting myself out there a little bit. Are there any other cricket fans in the audience? Anyone like watching the Proteas? As long as it's not in a major world competition, it's usually good watching. Do you remember the recent test series that we played against Australia? Right, right, and we're going to get there, right? We're going to get there. Do you know the reason we should be remembering that test match is because this is the first time that we have beaten Australia at home in a test series since 1971. That's before I was born. Right. That's why we should be remembered. This was a historic achievement that the Proteus managed very recently. Of course, that's not why we're going to be remembering it, is it? Right? This series will always be remembered for the ball tampering scandal that rocked the penultimate test in Newlands. Here are a couple of headlines that I stole from some of mostly Australian papers, some English papers. I had to edit out some of the less PC ones. I thought they were not quite so appropriate for the church. Right. Those are some of the headlines that you can see that they're not very kind to the Australian cricket team. See, what happens after that scandal is that um, Australia went into bat, and in their last innings, they were bowled out for 107. And actually, they were 57 for none, and so they lost all 10 wickets for 50 runs. They absolutely capitulated. And then we went and we played the fourth and the final test, where we beat them by our largest winning margin by runs of all time. We beat them by 492 runs. South Africa has never done that in a cricket test ever before. And our boys, and I don't want to take this away from them, they played exceptionally well. Mornay Morkel was a man of the series. It was his final um, series, and he, he played fantastically well. Right? But the Australian cricket team that we played against in that last test wasn't the same team that started the series. Smith, Warner, Bancroft, they'd all been sent home. And the rest of the team, they were discouraged, they were distracted, and they were ashamed of what they had done. And the Australian public in particular had ripped them apart, and, and they just had no heart left as a team, and so they crumbled. And they were absolutely uh, defeated by the Proteus. And the thing is, it's because when you, get, when you get discouraged, when you get distracted, and when you're facing loads of opposition, keeping your focus, fixing your mind on the goal becomes so much more difficult, doesn't it? And the temptation to throw in the towel becomes really, really strong, and you, you're mentally, you're just unfocused, and your heart is not in it. And I share that story with you this morning because that's what we're looking at in this particular chapter of Nehemiah. We're looking at what it looks like to go through distraction, opposition, discouragement. How do we as God's people journey through discouragement, distraction, and opposition? Right? And hopefully we'll do better than the Australian cricket team. If you're joining us for the first time this morning, you're catching us sort of halfway through our Nehemiah series, I'd love to encourage you to go to our website. You'll find our previous messages there. It'll fill you in nicely on the context. But we're jumping into Nehemiah chapter 4, and I want to give you just a brief summary of where we've gone so far so that you know a bit about where we're at. 
Nehemiah was a book set in about 500 BC. The Israelites, the people of Israel, they're, they're held captive. They're slaves to a foreign power. The Babylonian Empire, it's actually just become the Persian Empire in modern-day Iran, right? And some of them have been allowed to go back to Jerusalem. And, uh, and so they've gone back, and that happened about sort of 60 years before. And then word gets back to Nehemiah, who's in Babylon working with the king, that the city of Jerusalem is in ruins, Right? And so the king gives Nehemiah permission to go back and to begin rebuilding the walls of the city. And so in chapter 3 that John preached through last week, that's exactly what we see happening. Family by family, clan by clan, each family's got a section of the wall and they begin to rebuild it and build it up again. Right? And we pick up the story here in chapter 4. And we're going to read through chapter 4 together and I'm going to make a couple of comments as we go along and then I'm going to land with just two themes that I think we need to take out and learn from as we look at the story. So here we go, Nehemiah chapter 4 from verses 1 to 23. Sanballat, who was one of the guys who was there before the Israelites arrived, he was very angry when he learned that we were rebuilding the wall. And he flew into a rage and he began to mock the Jews. And he would say in front of his friends and the Sumerian army officers, he's like, what does this bunch of poor, feeble Jews think that they are doing? Do they think they can really build the wall in a single day just by offering a couple of sacrifices? Do they actually think that they can make something of stones from a rubbish heap? and charred and burnt ones at that. And then Tobiah the Ammonite gets in on the action, and he's standing beside him, and he says, that stone wall is so weak it would collapse if even a fox had to walk over the top of it. You guys are pathetic. And then Nehemiah says this, then I prayed, and I said, hear us, our God, for we are being mocked, and may their scoffing fall back on their own heads, and may they themselves become captives in a foreign land. Do not ignore their guilt. Do not blot out their sins, for they have provoked you to anger here in front of the builders. And I want to pause just for a moment at this point in the story and, and note something about Nehemiah's understanding of the actions of Sambalat and Tobiah. Right? They've, been, they've just been mocking God's people, but, but Nehemiah says, actually what you've done is you've brought an affront against God himself. Essentially, what he's implying is that when the, these people have rejected God's people and, and the people of God, they, they have, God doesn't turn a blind eye to that. God's not ignorant of what's happening in our lives as his people. In fact, he actually gets roused to anger in the defense of his name because to insult his people is to actually insult him. Right? Jesus said, don't worry when people reject you when you go out because they're not just rejecting you, they're actually rejecting the one who sent you, which is me. And for us, this, is, this can be an encouragement, right? It's an encouragement because when we get mocked and misunderstood and insulted by those who don't follow God, we recognize that actually there's something bigger that's actually going on. But it's also just a little bit of a warning for us to remember that God's people are a sacred people, and we're not to deride them lightly. We're not to think ourselves better than others and to mock them um, in, our, in our sort of self-righteousness. Right? So just, just to pause there. As we know, let's carry on into verse 6. It says this, At last the wall was completed to half of its height around the entire city, for the people had worked with enthusiasm. And I wanted us, I wanted us just to notice this, right? And um, before we continue into verse 7, I want you to notice the attitude of the people that we see here. Even though they've been mocked and derided, they've, they've worked with enthusiasm. And, and there's this buoyant feeling, there's this optimism about the task that they're undertaking for God and for His honor. Right, so they've done well. 
And then it continues, verse 7, it says, But when Sambalit and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites, right, they heard that the work was going ahead and that the gaps on the wall of Jerusalem were being repaired, they began to get furious. And so they all made plans to come and to fight against Jerusalem and to throw us into confusion. And so we pray to our God and we guarded the city day and night to protect ourselves. And then the people of Judah began to complain. And the workers, they said, the workers are getting tired. And there's so much rubble to be moved. We, we're never going to be able to build this wall all by ourselves. And I want us, I want us to notice something here. It's actually, there's quite a subtle thing here, which is really significant. Notice when the people begin to complain. It doesn't immediately follow the kind of increase in persecution that they begin to experience. See, initially they were mocked while they're building the wall, but they kind of carry on. And then they get halfway. They've actually, they've done the hardest part. For those of you that have started something big, you know that actually getting started and getting going is usually the hardest part, right? And they're actually doing well, and they're making some significant progress. But because the opposition began to intensify against them, it's no longer guys just, just mocking them and chirping them, but it's now beginning to get serious. So there's a response that's called out of them. Right? A response in faith to what God has called them to do. And so that is calling more on them. But because, and in that response, what they're doing is they're taking additional measures to protect themselves. You see, it says, and we guarded the city day and night. You see, before the opposition intensified, we would work all day, and then we would go and sleep at night, and it would be nice. Right? Now we work all day, and we're tired, but we've got to take, we've got to take guard shifts during the night. We've got to stand guard. We've got to watch over the city. We've got to watch over the wall. Right? And that means they're, they're not sleeping as well as they used to. They're, actually, they're getting physically drained and tired. And things have got serious and they've had to step up a little, but it's that response of faith because that's, that's what it was, uh, to defend this thing that God has given them to do. It wasn't easy. It wasn't just, it wasn't a quick prayer. Right? It, it wasn't an instant victory for them. It was a decision. God has called us to do this thing. Now we need to dig in. Now we need to hold. Now we need to fight. And it came at a cost. It was physically tiring. It was emotionally draining. And, and this is the really tragic thing for me as I, as I read this little section. It's because it was the cost of their faith response that actually caused them to lose focus on the goal that God had given them. Do you see that? It's because they've now had to work harder to defend what God has given them to do that they've begun to lose hope, that they've begun to stop believing. They no longer see this goal as achievable. They've begun to crumble a little bit like the Australian cricket team. And, and ironically, this is actually the goal that, that their enemies are trying to achieve in them. Remember we read that just now. This, this goal that they wanted to bring confusion into Jerusalem. And now they've got a Jewish people that have actually become confused about their purpose. And they've lost the sense of unity and this, the sense that this task was given to them by God and that it's good and that they can do it. Right? This is what the enemies wanted all along and they actually haven't even attacked them yet. And I wanted us to catch this because I think there's a lesson for us in this. It's that choosing to resist our opposition is only half the battle. That's the first step, and it's a good step. But, but in our resistance, we need to remain strong. We need to persevere. We need to hold onto the hope that we have in God. As the author to the Hebrews says, we need to run our race to the finish. 
We need to set our eyes on Jesus. We need to not lose hope halfway through. Sadly, choosing to resist is sometimes where we stop and we think we've done the right thing. We think we've done enough. And then the wheels begin to come off because choosing to respond in faith is only the first step in the faith response. But then there's a journey that needs to be journeyed out after that. We're going to tease that out a little bit more a bit later, but I wanted us to catch that before we move on. Let's jump to, to verse 11. We'll move on to verse 11. Right, it says, meanwhile, our enemies were saying, before they know what's happening, we're going to swoop down on them and we're going to kill them and we're going to end their work. And the Jews who lived near the enemy came and they told us again and again, he said, they're going to come from all directions and they're going to attack us. See, it's actually not getting any better for the builders yet, even though they've responded in faith. It actually seems to be getting worse. So I placed armed guards around the lowest parts of the wall in the exposed areas. I stationed people to stand guard by families, armed with swords, spears, and bows. And then as I looked over the situation, I called together the nobles and the rest of the people, and I said to them, don't be afraid of the enemy. Remember the Lord. He was great and glorious. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Something that I thought was very significant here in verse 14. See, Nehemiah makes this big speech, and this is a real important speech. It's a bit of a turning point in the story of chapter 4, right? And he's looking to rally the builders, and he's looking to inspire them into hope. And so he gets them all together, and he says, guys, don't be afraid. Remember the Lord. He is great and glorious, and, and you can almost anticipate the next line, right? He's going to go out before you and slaughter all of your enemies, and it's all going to be fine. Except that's not what he says, is it? He says, don't be afraid. Remember the Lord. He is great and glorious. Now I want you to go out and fight. See, there's a trap we can sometimes fall into as Christians where, where we over-spiritualize some parts of our theology to the point where, where we actually, we abrogate, we, we disregard the role that God has given us to play in the story. And sometimes there's a, there's a role that we need to play where we accompany God in what he's doing. And what Nehemiah, I think, does really poignantly here is to highlight for us how God's actions and our actions go together and are connected to each other. Because God is with us, and he will fight for us, but he fights alongside us. And we need to be alongside him as he does that. There's a responsibility that we carry as his people to go into battle with him and not to trust that he will do it all for us. Do you remember the story of, uh, of the Israelites fighting the Amalekites, right? That might, that's probably not a helpful intro, right? There were a lot of battles in the early days of the Israelites as they went into the Promised Land. This particular one happens in Exodus chapter 17, and you'll remember it because it's the story about how the battle was won because Moses stood on the hill and raised his arms to heaven. And while Moses raised his arms up to heaven, the battle was won by the Israelites, and they were winning. And it took all day. And when his arms got tired and he let them down, then the Amalekites began to win. And so, so Aaron and Hur come alongside him because Moses begins to get tired because he's an old man, right? And he gets tired of holding, I would get tired of holding my arms up in the air all day. And they help him. They sit him down and they hold his hands up in the air. And while he does that, the Israelites are battling and they're fighting. And eventually by the end of the day, God gives them the victory. It's a very normative principle, I think, for Scripture. If you look into the New Testament, you'll see James says this to us, and he says, I want you to submit yourselves to God, now resist the devil, 
and then he will flee from you. There's a role that we need to play. We need to fight alongside our God. And here's the thing. Sometimes we might take hits on the way to victory. I guarantee you that battle in Exodus 17, many Israelites died that day. They fought all day long. Many Israelites would have died that day. I would not be surprised in the story of Nehemiah. We never get told the story. But I would not be surprised if the battle did come that many Israelites would have died in that battle as well. Because sometimes that's, that's how battle works. It's not clean and safe and easy. But it's messy and it's difficult and it's challenging. But God calls us to be bold and to be courageous and to go with him in trust and to fight the fight that's put before us. All right, let's carry on. When our enemies heard that we knew of their plans and that God had frustrated them, we all returned to our work on the wall. But from then on, only half my men worked while the other half stood guard with spears and shields, bows, and coats of mail. The leaders stationed themselves behind the people of Judah who were building the wall, and the laborers carried on their work with one hand supporting their load and the other one holding a weapon. And all the builders had their sword belted at their side. See, verse 15 here is a great example of what we just read in James. It was the builders' resistance and their faith, their submitting to God and their resisting of the enemies, they took practical steps that broke the power of the opposition. But I want you to notice the opposition didn't stop. Their enemies didn't leave. They were still there. In fact, if you continue reading through Nehemiah, you'll find that in chapter 6, this opposition actually begins to intensify even more. And there's some really some significant schemes that they begin to work out as they get crafty and cunning as they really try and take apart what God is doing. But notice this as well, that the power the opposition had over them has been broken. They're no longer in confusion. They're no longer lost and disillusioned and hopeless as a people. But they've been sort of rallied together. They've, they've galvanized their resolve around this thing that God has called them to do, and they're no longer lost. They're no longer without hope. They've learned to expect opposition and that they can overcome it. He carries on, says, The trumpeter stayed with me to sound the alarm, and then I explained to the nobles and the officials and all the people that the work is very spread out. And we're, and we're widely separated from each other along the wall. And so when you hear the blast of the trumpet, I want you to rush to wherever it's sounding because then God is going to fight for us. See how he develops that there. Verse 21, we worked early and late from sunrise to sunset and half the men were always on guard. And I told everyone living outside the walls to stay in Jerusalem. That way they, they and their servants could help with the guard duty and night and day and at night and work during the day. And during this time, none of us, not I, nor my relatives, nor my servants, nor the guards who were with me, none of us ever took off our clothes. We never removed our mail shirts. We carried our weapons with us at all times, even when we went to get a drink of water from the well. That's the end of Nehemiah chapter 4. And I've said quite a bit as we've gone through that already, but I want to highlight just two things that we pull from the story that I think are very relevant for us today. And the first is this. First is this question, how will you respond to opposition when you face it? Tom, could you put that up? 
right? How will you respond to opposition when you face it? See, throughout this chapter, we see these returned Israelites experience resistance and opposition from the people that are around them. And in fact, we've seen how it started quite small and actually began to escalate and gets a bit more serious and continues to get a bit more serious. And we've seen these different levels of response, both from Nehemiah and from the builders in general. And typically, the response of the builders seems to have swayed between faith and fear, depending on the moment and the space that they find themselves in, right? In verse 9, we see them respond in faith, and they, and they pray, and they trust God. But immediately afterwards, in verse 10, they get discouraged and despondent, and they lose hope. In verse 12, they actually get panicked, and they're convinced they're soon going to die, and everything's falling apart. And eventually, again, after Nehemiah's speech, they regain some of their composure, and they continue the work in a state of readiness and alertness. In contrast to them, Nehemiah's responses always seem to be filled with faith, and they, they seem to have this twofold um, element that, that they both contain. They, they seem to include an element on how we're now going to defend ourselves in light of this opposition, and, and a theological rationale for us. In other words, why we can be confident that God will help us in this thing. And I know, I know all of us would love to say that, you know, if I had to pick who I was going to respond like, I'd, I want to respond like Nehemiah. I mean, that's always our hope, isn't it? The thing is that probably if we're, if, we're a bit, if we're honest, more often than not, we tend to respond like the rest of the builders, somewhere between faith and fear, okay? Depending on how alert we are at the time to our spiritual surroundings, depending on what our emotions are doing and how we're feeling, depending on the stress levels that we're carrying, depending on how distracted we are by the different responsibilities that we hold, so one of the things as we, as we answer this question, how will we respond to opposition when we encounter it, I wanted to, I wanted to just tease out a little bit of what, what I think has helped Nehemiah respond in the way that he has to the different levels of challenge and opposition that he found. And, and these, are, these are things that, that I think we see in the story of Nehemiah from chapter 1 through to chapter 4. And so I'm just going to pull a few of them out um, as we go along. And in chapter 1, one of the things you really see in Nehemiah is that he believed in God's faithfulness. He constantly refers to God as the faithful God, as the one who will not abandon his people, as the one who will not leave them in shame. And so he's got this recognition, this understanding that God can be trusted, and I can place my hope and my faith in him. The second thing we see about Nehemiah is that he really knew God's promises. He knew the promises God had made through the prophets to the people of Israel. He knew that their, their call was not to remain in exile forever. He knew that God has said if they turn to him and repent and turn their hearts back to the Lord, that he would restore them. Right? He knew that there was a new covenant that was coming, and he longed for it and desired for it. Right? And so he trusted in the promises that God had given him. And just We have those same promises and more for us. He had a reason for being in Jerusalem that it was fermented by God through four to six months of prayer. That, that, was, that was really significant for me as I saw that the first time he received word right, was in about November, December. By the time the king responded to him, it was April, May. And during all that time, Nehemiah says, and I prayed day and night before the Lord. Day and night. I had this one thing, this thing that I, that I believed God was calling me to do, and I, and I laid it down before him day and night for four to six months. And I know I see this in our younger generation. 
And I won't claim to see it in you, but maybe you can ask yourself this question. When you, when you feel God has called you to something, how long have you allowed God to ferment that desire in your heart? How long have you allowed him to distill that through quiet prayer and contemplation? Because that's one of the things that holds Nehemiah strong is when he goes into this place and he begins to experience real opposition. He knows like he knows like he knows that God has said you need to be here. And because he knows that God has definitely spoken, he can stand strong when the enemy comes against him. Chapter 2. One of the things Nehemiah saw as well is he saw God's guidance over this endeavor because it was displayed in the favor of a pagan king. He should never really have had favor from uh, King Artaxerxes. He was a Persian king, didn't really care about the Jewish people, and yet for some reason, God seems to place a burden for the Jewish people on a pagan king's heart. There's this, there's this evidence outside of himself that God has blessed this thing. And that reinforces for him what he's, been, what he's been praying for over time. And it's a sign to him that God is behind this. For us, we want to look for those things. We want to recognize, do I, re- do I sense, as Howard spoke about two weeks ago, do I sense the gracious hand of my God on me for this? Do I recognize God is with me? And as I said, God... He, he also, in chapter 2, we see that he really was convinced that God had called him to this task. And because he knew that God had called him to it, he knew that God would enable him to complete it. In chapter 3, you, you see this picture, and I can just picture Nehemiah as he's, he's had this vision from the Lord. He's fermented it for a long time. He's worked it out. And now it begins to become reality. And he looks around Jerusalem, and he sees family after family, clan after clan. Everyone has bought in. And they've got behind this thing. And he just recognizes the unity in their hearts that's galvanized them around this thing that God has placed in his heart. Remember God's words in Genesis 11 when, they built the, when humanity built the Tower of Babel. And he looks down and he says, the people are united and they speak the same language. After this, nothing they set out to do will be impossible for them. Even God recognizes the power of unity amongst the community. And as Nehemiah sees that, I'm sure it encourages his heart and it galvanizes his resolve to know that this is what God has called him to. And there's there's one more thing that I think really we can learn from Nehemiah. We see it in chapter 4, but I want to touch on it in just a moment because it's the next theme, right? So hold on for me for about 30 seconds. But we're going to face opposition in our own lives. And so if we can take some of these foundations that, that Nehemiah has found... And if we can begin to build them into our lives, if we can know the faithfulness of God, the promises of God, if we can really know that God has called us to this thing because we've spent time with Him in prayer, dedicated, consolidated time, right? If we can see the blessing of God over the thing that He's called us to, we're going to be far more likely to hold up when opposition comes. So let's grab some of those. Here's, Here's the next one. And the place that I want to land, that's the last take home I want to leave you with. And for me, this is, I think, one of the things that stood out for me most as I read this passage. This was almost the, what we call the meta-narrative of this passage for me. Um, and, it's, and it was this. What do we anticipate as our normal? What is your expectation of normality, of what life should look like? 
See, we see these the builders sway from, from faith to fear and back again. And I think the reason for that is because their understanding of what is normal was radically redefined in the fire of opposition. Right? They went from a place of, of really being fearful about what the opposition was going to do to being galvanized in their resolve. And, and I want to paint a little bit of the background to that story. You see, when they went out from Babylon and they went back to Jerusalem, they went with, as we said earlier, this pagan king's favor, right? Artaxerxes had given them incredible favor. In fact, as Howard told us, he went with an, they went with an armed escort. They had a military escort to take them back into Jerusalem to make sure that they were safe. They were given letters. They were given passports to be able to get into all the places they needed to get to. They were given favor with all of the king's resources, and people were told to supply them with everything that they needed for this task that God has given them. See, in their minds, they went on like a holy quest, this God-inspired journey to restore the honor of God's city and his people. They left a place of exile and punishment to re-enter the land of milk and honey. And for a time, everything was going just as they had expected it would. The work progressed as normal. Sure, some people were making jokes. They were mocking them, but the wall was being built. The quest was being fulfilled. The honor of God and his people was being reestablished. And everything was going well, just as they expected that it would. But it's when the opposition comes and begins to actually get serious that we see the wheels begin to fall off. It's when it's no longer jokes and chirps, but it's the mobilization of enemy troops who are going to come and attack you and looking to murder your wife and your child. That's when things get serious. That's when this, the glossy veneer of the, of the prosperity gospel suddenly begins to get ripped apart. Because right? that, that's really what it is. It's really what it is. The returning Israelites have carried in their mind this idea that because they are doing God's will, everything is going to be blessed, right? It's not going to be hard. It's not going to cost us anything. It's going to be milk and honey, sunflower and roses. God is with us, and everything's going to just fall into place. They didn't have the prosperity gospel movement in 500 BC. That didn't exist, right? We face a much bigger challenge today. Because the prosperity gospel is not only alive and well, because in the church we kind of know that it's bad and we, and we kind of reject it, at least in good evangelical churches. But, it, but it's so much a part of the culture around us. The teaching of the prosperity gospel is the very core of Western capitalism. It becomes so pervasive. It's everywhere. It's in every magazine that you read. It's in every shop that you go to. It's every advert that you watch on TV. It's every program, every show, everywhere it's there. It becomes exceedingly difficult to resist. Jesus' promise to us, in contrast to the prosperity gospel, is this. He says, I've told you all of these things. He's just told his disciples where he's going to go, that he's going to make a place for them. He says, I've told you all of these things that you may have peace in me because here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows. Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows. Take heart because I've overcome the world. It's John 16, 33. See, I think the biggest lesson that the builders learn here in chapter 4 is to redefine their understanding of what is normal. Because by the end of this chapter, what we see is that the opposition has not ceased. 
The opposition hasn't ended, but they've learned to live with opposition at their doorstep. They've learned to live in vigilance and in readiness. They've, they've learned that they need to carry their weapons wherever they go, that they can't let their guard down for a moment, even when they go to get water or when they sleep at night. Right? That they always have to have their guard up. Peter says to us in the New Testament the very same thing. He says, I want you to be sober-minded and alert because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Opposition is right on our doorstep, friends. And, and I'm, unfortunately, that's not a very pleasant thought. It's not very comforting or very reassuring, but it is the reality that we walk in. We can take heart because Jesus has overcome the world. Just like the builders with Nehemiah, we live under that constant threat. But if we can learn that, if that becomes our understanding of normal, then when, when things begin to get hard, it no longer takes us by surprise. And when the calling of God has a cost, it no longer breaks our focus. And we don't lose heart in the midst of the struggle. And we are able to run the race with perseverance and to receive the crown of righteousness at the end. I'm not saying this life is not going to be full of God's blessing, right? Because it is. And Jesus came to give us life and life in abundance. And there is joy in the kingdom. There is joy in the presence of God. But the reality is the road that we walk is also a battle. And Paul spends most of Ephesians chapter 6 trying to explain that to us. And we just need to know that. We need to go into life with the expectation that everything is not going to be peachy and beautiful and sunflowers and roses. But that sometimes things are going to be hard. And sometimes we're going to have to grind. And sometimes we're going to have to take courage in our God and stand our ground and fight. And God will come through. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are a good and a great God. Thank you, God, that what you birth, you enable. Thank you that you never leave us or forsake us. Thank you that you prepare a table before us, even in the presence of our enemies, that our cups overflow, that we can say that goodness and mercy follow us all the days of our lives, even though every day we will face opposition. We bless you for that, God. And I pray for us as a people, God. I pray for us that we would, we would recognize the world that we live in. That we would know it, God, and that we would know our Father. We would know our King. We would take courage in who you are. We would stand ourselves strong in you. We would, as James says, submit ourselves to you and stand our ground. And we would win the battle, God. Teach us, Lord, what it looks like to persevere in the depths of struggle, when our hearts don't feel like it, when our emotions are down, when we don't feel like we've got anything left to give. God, be our strength. Be our hope. Pour into us, God, the life that comes only from you and from your spirits. We know, God, in our own strength we can't stand. We know in our own strength we will fall. But, God, our hope is in you. Our faith is in you. Our trust is in you. And we know that with our God, we can scale a wall, we can bend a bow of bronze. Because you are with us, none can stand against us. We bless you for that, God. We thank you that we are not in this battle alone. We thank you that you haven't abandoned us. 
but that you lead us into victory as we stand alongside you. God, give us courage. Make us to be a bold people, a strong people, a people who finish the task that you place before them for your glory and your name. We ask this in your wonderful name, Jesus. Amen.